the Triathlon Show 283. Up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I'm happy to welcome back coach David Tilbury Davis. This episode is a bit of a different kind of episode. It's not strictly an interview, more so a discussion where David and I sit down and talk about how coaching and training principles are seem to be evolving and uh, things that we've been thinking about. Well, specifically, David has been thinking about them and uh, let me in on that. And then I have started uh, learning about these same things myself. So if you want to pin me down and and uh, ask me, well, what is the actual topic of the of the episode in less vague terms then i would say that it's about training learning and performance frameworks and how they are evolving and and evolving from the traditional type of training that has been done in endurance sports and these frameworks are already used in many other contexts and sports outside of triathlon but we will talk about how these frameworks can be used in triathlon or generally in endurance sports settings which hasn't really been talked about much uh, anywhere that that i've seen and uh, we do appreciate that this is a different kind of episode and it won't necessarily be everybody's cup of tea that's okay but i think for many listeners it can be quite eye-opening and a much more unique and episode that actually makes you think and reflect about things that you do in your coaching or in your training for that matter so I hope that many of you will enjoy it and will find it useful. Uh, just uh, uh, just a fair word of warning. It may take a little time to digest all of these things and, and let it sink in. But before we get into the episode, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration. Precision Hydration creates electrolyte products that you can use to match your individual sweat sodium concentration. So if you are somebody that loses a lot of sodium, you can get a highly concentrated uh, sodium supplement. And if you are somebody that loses less, then you can use less. And especially as races get hotter and longer, this becomes a crucial part to get right to be able to maintain performance uh, for the entire duration that you will be out there on the race course. But even in training, when you're training, especially at high volumes and to be able to recover properly from session to session it can make a difference if you make sure that you don't run too low on your sodium and and having sodium in your uh, hydration is a key part of that you can get 15 percent off your precision hydration products with the promo code that triathlon show one five and thank you to roca roca are the world leading manufacturers of wetsuits dry suits swim skins goggles high performance eyewear and prescription glasses and sunglasses uh, today I want to make a product highlight of Roca's tri-suit, the Gen 2 Elite Aero tri-suit. The Gen 2 uh, tri-suit is designed to provide the optimal balance of aerodynamics, race day function and premium comfort for triathlons anywhere from sprint to Ironman distance. Uh, it has been developed for aerodynamics and thermal regulation in the wind tunnel and out in the real world in, in the hot conditions of uh, of Texas where uh, Droka is located. Uh, they have the arms of technology that they also have in their wetsuits integrated in the tri-suit itself so that you still retain that same uh, shoulder mobility 
that you get from the wetsuit sorcerer technology and you don't have your tri suit be the bottleneck for for that and this is a pro tip that i would give to all the listeners when you're practicing open water swimming use your tri suit and your wetsuit to make sure that you know that feeling because on race day you won't be swimming with just speedos or or, or a swimming suit and the wetsuit you will have your tri suit underneath so make sure that you're familiar with that feeling and uh, because it might just be different from using a wetsuit uh, with no tri suit but uh, i'm happy to say that with the gen 2 elite the aero tri suit that's not a problem at all it's designed to be perfect uh, perfect perfectly comfortable in the water under the wetsuit as well you can get 20% off your roca order with the promo code that you can get on roca.com forward slash tts and one more quick piece of housekeeping, just a reminder that until the end of April, we have a launch promo for the newly launched Advanced Olympic 713 and Ironman training plans that you can find on scientifictriathlon.com forward slash plans. Uh, so they are available until the end of April for 60% off. Uh, go to scientifictriathlon.com forward slash plans to find out more information about that. Now, without any further ado, let's get into this episode with coach David Tilbury Davis. Today we have David Tilbury Davis back on the podcast. Hi David, how are you doing? Not too bad, Mikael. How are you doing? I'm doing good, thanks. Uh, for listeners that uh, may not have heard your previous appearances on the podcast, uh, do you mind taking a little minute or two to just uh, give a quick introduction to yourself? Sure. I've um, been coaching triathlon for uh, over 25 years now. Um, worked always with a, a handful of athletes around the world, um, mainly individuals that are extremely performance orientated. That doesn't necessarily mean only pros or only age groupers, but I think there's always the mindset has always been the same, whether they're a triathlete or a road cyclist or a mountain biker. Um, and, and, and that's really how I've gained all of my coaching experience on, you know, different continents. I've coached in, lived in Spain for some time, coached there, uh, lived in the U S for about six years, uh, currently live in Finland. Uh, and, uh, you know, over those years I've, I've coached athletes on five, six different continents, you know, different languages. So, uh, sort of a broad, a broad base of experience. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and just for those listeners that may not be aware, uh, and for full transparency, you are also coaching. You're coaching me uh, in my own athletic career. So so that's uh, well, we've known each other for for quite a long time now, and uh, have been yes. working to, together for some time as well. And uh, and this discussion for today that we have is something that uh, that I think. When did you when did you start learning about it? And can you just be briefly introduce the topic? I think probably a, a good sort of six to nine months ago, I really started to reframe how I was looking at the sort of development of athletes over the long term and, 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 and try and understand uh, the fact that within coaching historically, we've, um, and, and I talk in the context of sort of endurance sports, um, we've always come at things in a fairly reductionist way of 
saying we want to create a certain stimulus X and a different stimulus Y and the summation of those things should allow a person to then operate in the competitive environment to the best of their ability. And that's become apparent to me uh, as more and more of a supposition and and that actually, uh, whilst in principle it's sound to take that approach, you know, particularly early on in the developmental cycle, um, as an athlete gets more experienced and, and higher performing, you know, suddenly you're trying to resolve you know, increasing the performance capacity of somebody by maybe 1%. And so now, you know, you're not looking for um, 10 needles in one haystack in terms of physiological developmental tools. You know, you're looking for one needle in 10 haystacks. Um, and there isn't, you know, a right answer for everybody. It's very context dependent on the individual. And and that's what's really driven all of this for me. And then also, you know, digging into the the, the physiology as a whole, um, you know, really starting to compartmentalize things into, you know, how are we actually developing this athlete? You know, are we, you know, concerned with, um, the sort of psychological development aspects, or are we concerned with the sort of central adaptation, so cardiovascular system, or are we concerned with peripheral adaptation in terms of you know uh, metabolites and muscle recruitment and those sorts of things, um, and really trying to understand with each individual athlete that I work with that that those things may be different for different athletes and. And we've started to see uh, within the coaching sphere this idea that actually, you know, coaching individuals, you know, is about dealing with a, a complex dynamic system rather than, you know, something that you can, you know, based on sort of SEALs general adaptation to, to stress theories, you know, you give it a stimulus, you get a response. And yes, you, you do, but um that i think in in this day and age of competition is quite a reductionist approach so what i'm hearing you say is that basically the traditional approach has maybe been more of you you impose a stimulus and you expect that maybe a component of the system will uh, will respond in in a given way and that's maybe your objective and and you work on perhaps several different components that you almost assume are uh, independent of each other and and that's been the yeah. traditional way and maybe slightly reductionist way but but now you're looking at looking at the individual in a more of a from a holistic perspective i guess and realizing the interdependency between different components and system whether we're talking about physiology or psychology and and how all those interact and trying to use that um that perspective and that understanding to to better develop the athlete is that right yeah and then and they're not and they're not mutually exclusive i think they sit on a continuum um you know a a, a good way to understand it is you know maybe somebody comes to the sport quite late in life you know they have a somewhat athletic background um but they come to triathlon late in life um they're not you know they haven't particularly been 
particularly active, but you know they have talent, for want of a better phrase. Um, you know, really at that point, do you do you even need to to get into the weeds of very specific physiological aspects of development when really you just need to get them fitter? You know, you just need to increase their VO2 max, you know. So rather than worrying about, you know, do we focus on developing their threshold? Do we focus on developing their lactic metabolism? Do we, you know, those are uh, two mechanisms that you might, that a coach might consider. But in reality, with this individual, you just need to throw you know, a varied amount of stimulus at this individual that's early on in their developmental phase and let them just train consistently, consistently, you know, under a variety of stimuli. Yeah, that might sound very simple. Uh, Just, just train, maybe, (laughs) maybe hard sometimes. What are the challenges with this? If, if any, like, is there a catch? Um, yes. I mean, I think, I, I think you can't get away from some basic rules of thumb of development. So, you know, I, I've always used over the years. I've always used this analogy of, you know, the um, about being the own architecture, the being the own architect of your own house. And so, you know, what I'm talking about there is, you know, the foundations of your house are, you know, your genetics, which you don't have much choice in, um, your sleep you know, patterns, your nutrition patterns, your stress management patterns. Um, and then, you know, the the walls of the house, if you're trying to build yourself a mansion, you know, you want big, strong walls, you know, that's your structural stability. That's your conditioning uh, status or developmental needs. Um, some people need to do plenty of conditioning work other people based on you know age sporting background maybe maybe don't um at that point um you know and then you're getting into you know okay well how high is the roof you know that's the vo2 you know do we need to raise that in order to have a bigger house and and that and that simple model is just a snapshot of you know where an individual is at um and and then you know you're very simplistically saying well okay where do they want to be so if they have a race in six months or twelve months um, then you almost are wanting to do a gap analysis and say okay well where does this individual want to be you know in six months in twelve months um, and and it might be something as etherous as fitter faster stronger and that's great um, and that can really drive some decision making in the coaching but it might also be extremely specific like you know i want to be able to swim this time uh, i want to be able to bike at this pace uh, you know i want to be able to run at this pace um and so that that sets you know that that sets a, a pathway in place for a process of development for a coach or an or an athlete to then say okay well that's where i want to be you know where am i now um so so yes initially it sounds very simple um but once you start to sort of go under the water of the tip of the iceberg you know there's a lot of things to to look at 
Um, but, but generally, you know, early in the developmental cycle, you know, you're really concerned about central adaptation. So just improving fitness. Yeah. So I want to go into that a little bit because you're still talking about things like central adaptations. So, so we're still looking at components of a system uh, rather than yeah. just the outputs of the system or the system as a whole. So, so what is kind of, what is it that has, um, changed in what has changed in your coaching uh in a way or since starting to look at at this sort of model uh of uh i guess athletes as a complex system uh, if if you're still looking at the components of the physiology uh, what what in practice is the difference between how you used to coach and how you coach now uh, i think the biggest difference is con- is contextualizing um the the workouts to maybe the adaptation that we're chasing after or the uh, the scenarios that we expect to happen. So, you know, I can, I can give you a couple examples then and make it a lot easier to understand. So, you know, traditionally within coaching, you know, we've, you know, we may have started from a base point of, okay, we want to do a block of sort of VO2 max development work. And, the, you know, there's fairly, you know, standardized structures of those types of main set that, many 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 coaches yourself and and me you know have used and do use um but then what i felt was more appropriate with more seasoned individuals and and elites is to say okay well we want to do this particular stimulus for a given reason but actually what we should say is we want to do a certain amount of work at very high intensity and we want to have a certain amount of recovery from that work to elicit a certain metabolic response. But rather than write a session based on pace or um, intensity, I would say, right, you know, Mikhail, you're, you're in a race scenario. You're on the run. There's four other guys running with you. And, you know, you've got 5K to go. You've got four opportunities to drop them one at a time and i want you to go um you know i want you to you know to attack each of them for certain you know for whatever you feel is necessary but but in total you're only going to do for i'm going to say 16 minutes of of attacks and then you're allowed to sit in and recover for eight but in that 16 minutes you need to in your head visualize those competitors and visualize you know, dropping them one at a time. So I haven't given you a pace. I haven't given you an interval length. I haven't given you a recovery length. I've given you the autonomy to do all of that. And I've contextualized it in a way that you may even have experienced in a race in the past, or that we may have discussed as a likely outcome in a race that you do in the future. Yeah, yeah, it gives a lot of autonomy. And, uh, and you don't necessarily need the same amount of structure as those typical workouts that we've all seen many, many times uh, and, would would provide. And it and it tallies with you know it tallies with um, you know maybe how as coaches we need to understand um, not necessarily the actual age of an individual, but their their sort of their athletic age, because when somebody comes to a coach you know very early on in their sporting career, whether they're you know, a, a junior athlete or whether they're in their 20s, but they're very new to the sport, then, you know, 
clearly any um, instruction is going to be very pedagogical. It's going to be very teacher-led. You know, the, the coach is going to be designing the learning process, giving, you know, tips and guidelines on how to execute that process, providing motivation, you know, setting clear boundaries um, and clear goals. Um, as you get more experience, that becomes more self-directed learning. Um, and so, you know, I set as a coach, I might set the task, um, but I'd encourage you to problem solve that task through a multitude of mechanisms that allow you to kind of learn and experience, you know, your your own you know, sense of awareness of what you're doing and how you're doing it. And then, you know, eventually when um, somebody is extremely experienced, and, and this is almost the case with, you know, world-class athletes, you're into the realms of like self-determined learning. So that's very much where the athlete is trying to find problems and then turning to the coach and saying, this is a problem. Just figure out how I resolve that problem. And then, you know, I will then use the tools that I have available to me in a physiological or psychological sense um, to, you know, implement that solution that you present. Um, so the coach is almost is almost not coming at an elite athlete with I have a system and I have an approach that I think you need to do. It's more a case of saying, you know, okay, you always seem just as an example, you know, you always seem to, you know, execute a race where in the swim, first 400 meters, you know, you're right up there with the front pack, almost one of the, the first swimmers. Um, and then, you know, at, at 600 meters, you're in the second pack and then, a, um, you know, 1K into the into the half Ironman, you're, you're swimming with the third pack. And they're like, you know, I'm, I'm training really hard. My, you know, training's going well, but I don't understand why that's happening. You know, and then that's where I, as a coach, you would go away and say, okay, I'm now into sort of failure management rather than success management, which is what you're doing in the early days of somebody's developmental cycle is, you know, you're focusing on the principles and practices that are going to create success. But then when somebody is already successful, you're really into the territory of failure management and saying, what goes wrong? Because nobody ever really has the perfect race. So it's like, what went wrong in that race? What went wrong in that race? What went wrong in that training session? You know, what went wrong in that training session? Um, and, and problem solving. And, that, and that's where this, all, this sort of complexity comes from. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting, uh, really interesting perspective, and and I like that with how early on in development phase you're uh, you're thinking of more in terms of success management and then failure management as you get to the very pointy end. Um, one one thing that the example with the workout made me think of where the athlete gets the autonomy to to execute some a certain scenario, for example, that you described, is that what it makes me think of is that this is sort of an integrated approach where you're you're working whatever the physiological target of the workout may be but you're also doing that while practicing the same mental and cognitive skills you will be needing in a race because we all know that 
a race is not just about who can score the highest on a VO2 max test, but there are many other components yeah. of it. So, so is that a key part for you? Um, I think it's. I think the key part of it is also about helping an athlete understand their own unique physiology. You know, there are athletes out there that um, are are innately predisposed to do well in a race that requires a lot of surging just because of tactics and strategy and people doing silly things and not doing silly things and, 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 you know, or that there's a lot of surging required because of the nature of the course. You know, it's, it's got lots of punchy climbs, there's headwinds, there's tailwinds. Um, and there are other people who are sort of physiologically predisposed to just need to just sort of be really as even with their effort as possible in order to optimize their physiological performance. And, I think the more that you play around with this sort of constraints-based training, uh, the more learning opportunities that you give athletes to, you know, get an insight into, you know, what works best for them. And there's always going to be failure in these types of workouts. But we also know from from research on sort of constraints-led training that if athletes are sort of failing at a given task 30% of the time, then you're you're on the cusp of adaptation and development to that task stimulus. You know, more than that, if they're failing 50% of the time, you know, let's say you give them an interval workout and they just can never get through even half of it, then you know, you either don't understand their physiology or they're just not you know, maybe they're not at a point in terms of their development to be able to achieve what you're trying to give them from a race scenario. If uh, in in these workouts that are constraints-based, if you don't necessarily give a pace or power target to the athlete, how, how do you determine that it is a failed or successful workout? Is it when the athlete uh, themselves come to the conclusion that, Oh, I was supposed to do four surges within this block, but I, I only managed three, and then I was absolutely smashed. I just couldn't do anything that would look even remotely surge-like. Or, or is there? A, do you have any other definitions of? What no, and I think no, I think that I think that's a good. I think that's a good way of of looking at it. And it's not failure in the sense that you failed. I'm disappointed. It's failure in a sense of, you know, you failed, and there's a learning opportunity there you know why did you fail well clearly you failed because when we dig into it we can see that you know the paces that you went out at in the first three efforts were so hard that basically you had nothing left in the tank and so actually if you did that workout again you know you might sort of put a cap on just quite how hard you go on those attacks so you know, my ultimate goal with the athletes that I work with is letting them walk into a race, you know, with, you know, um, a pair of kings, a pair of queens and a jack um, and and knowing that that's their poker hand. You know, I'm not, um, well, that's maybe not, not as great a hand as you could have, but, but you get my point. Um you know, I want athletes to know the hand that they can play or, or know the game that they can play because, you know, we, we as coaches can sit there and say, you know, the optimal way to execute a long distance race is to 
swim as evenly as possible and bike as evenly as possible and run as evenly as possible. But as you well know from your own experience, you know, once you're at the pointy end, you're not necessarily given that privilege. It's kind of taken away from you by the racing dynamics around you. Yeah, absolutely. And and that is one thing that uh, that this topic and uh, the discussions we've had about it before has always led me to to think that it it is in some way and it's not as simplistic as that necessarily but 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 a lot of it speaks for an approach where race specificity seems to be quite central even though it doesn't mean that well okay i have this one power target or one power pace but as you said it's yes race specificity within certain scenarios that you might, might encounter on race and, and and that and you know and you bring up a really interesting point there about race specificity because this is what i'm driving at when i say that whilst you know, whilst coaching in the early stages can be very reductionist in its views, you know, over time it needs to be more complex because when you talk about that race specificity, you and I both know that, you know, that the internet tells us that, you know, the optimal power to race an Ironman at on the bike is 75% of your FTP. Now, I'm not going to get into debates whether that's true or not, but let's just take it as read that it is. But what what that misses is we can do all the training in the world to ensure that that from an FTP and percentage of FTP perspective that you could ride at that power. And, you know, we could validate that within training sessions as well. But what we might actually be missing is the fact that, you know, the, the underlying metabolic cost of you doing that is not fuelable. So actually, whilst you you might be trying to ride at 240 watts, just picking a number, um, in an Ironman, you know, maybe for Mikhail, because of the training that we've done and your own, just your own physiology, maybe the price of that is 135 grams of carbohydrate an hour being burnt. And you you can't eat that. You can't feel that. So whilst you could maybe eat 100 or 110 and and have a good bike, when you get on the run, you know, sort of metabolically speaking, you're bankrupt. And so that's where I think specificity is important, but it's also it can also take you down a, a slippery slope of not performing to your ability. Yeah, yeah. Um, for self-coached athletes, what is what are some tips that you would tell them in terms of like if and especially if we have so you're saying that earlier on in the development cycle you you might use a more traditional approach uh, and benefit from it, but if we have some advanced self-coached athletes, yes. w- would you be able to give them some advice for how to start integrating this kind of thinking in their training? Absolutely. I mean, I think I would I would say start to contextualize some of your quality workouts around, you know, race experiences that have gone well or have gone poorly. Um, you know, there's a dearth of data that we can have to hand nowadays. Um, you know, actually play around with, um, you know, scenarios where you say, okay, well, I, I did this race like six months ago and 
you know, I raced really well and I just don't understand why, um, you know, halfway through the run, the lights went out, even though I didn't sort of biomechanically feel I was in a bad place. Um, and, and that, you know, is one way you might say, okay, well, was I, was I actually getting enough hydration and nutrition on board or, you know, was I actually riding far too stochastically for my own ability? Um, and that's where you might experiment and say, well, you know, in that race I started and the run and, you know, I wanted to run at four and a half minutes per K, just picking a number. And, um, but then after, you know, after 30 minutes, I had to dramatically slow down. And so then, you know, you might proceed that with a bike session where you, you know, ride very steady and, or you ride very stochastically, or you might proceed it with a workout where you ride very steady and try and take on board more fuel and then, you know, run and, and just pay attention to how your body feels um, and how you respond to those changes in principles and practices. And then, you know, if you find a solution that works, that, 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 that changes the problem, that fixes the problem, then go away and practice it. So a, a big takeaway seems to be this iterative learning process. You, you have yeah. had a race experience or several race experiences in the past that you draw upon. And, but then every time you do a key workout, you, you have the opportunity to gain these new learning experiences And, and also these, well, these sessions are in some way, uh, designed to help you get through your next race in an optimal manner, but, but you can basically you have your starting point, which is way back in your previous races. And then you have your journey through the workouts and then you have your, your next end point, which is the, the upcoming A races that you might have. And, and then, but then throughout the sessions, it's, it's not just about designing your perfect training plan to take you from point A to point B, but to, to really be present through that journey and, and change things as you get new information coming in. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of it is around mindset. I mean, let's, let's not forget that the nature of this sport is that really the absolute majority of the training needs to be aerobically orientated. You know, what we're really, you know, I'm not talking about the steak, you know, I'm talking, you know, what we're really talking about is, you know, the vegetables on the plate you know the steak is just solid aerobic work you know you're not this isn't like a suddenly a you know an advocacy for you know just doing you know high intensity interval training or crossfit to get you through an ironman you know there's a there's a reality to a certain amount of aerobic work being required but this is sort of more the nuance around how to develop um yourself as an athlete in the in the context of racing and intensity within your training yeah yeah one of the things that one of the uh, the papers that we've discussed talks about is developing diversity potential as well yeah and i think that's a quite an interesting concept to to think of in terms of again one example that that comes to mind personally is that well traditionally a lot of the race specificity might be oriented towards one specific steady power and you go out and do four times 25 minutes for your half distance race pace or uh, race power on the bike or or three times 50 minutes or an hour for your Ironman race pace or whatever it may be but but that's not necessarily developing your diversity potential but it's about maybe 
being able to do a hard 10 minute effort first because you have a climb at the start of the bike and then and then being yeah. able to do that work afterwards yes and you're always trying to make sure you're not doing anything too extravagant but the reality is if you you know dial into a very specific pace and uh or power you know you're operating at certain muscular contraction rates and then you go out in the real world and you ride on a course where there's wind there's gradient changes and so actually you're constantly having to adapt well you know it's better to have prepared for that scenario so you know a, a very simple one is is the swim you know if if somebody naturally prefers quite a low stroke rate in the swim um but they're actually quite fit, then when they go and race, they find themselves in the midst of a pack. They're swimming on somebody else's feet. They're, the water that they're trying to catch is you know, less aerated. It's less dense. So their hand is slipping through the water a lot quicker. So their stroke count, their stroke rate goes up. And that's something that they're not used to muscularly. Um, and so whilst the fitness is there, it's almost like the, uh, the capacity for the chassis to express the fitness is lacking. And it's this kind of problem solving that you're, you know, that you're always trying to wrap your head around and do when you're thinking about things as, as like complex systems, rather than, as you say, you know, I'm going to ride my Ironman at this power. I'm going to go out and do four times 20 minutes at that power. And then I'm golden. Yeah, yeah, and and even something as simple as thinking about where you do it, like if you do that, those four by twenty minutes outdoors, that's still going to be more realistic in terms of how how that might happen on race day compared to doing it indoors on the trainer. Which is not to say that that's a bad way to train at all. Uh, I I love it, but uh, but sometimes like, but it's just a very different experience to to being able to produce power outdoors yeah. and and being able to sort of work with the terrain and and work with the small changes or bigger changes that comes up depending on, on the course you're riding. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, certainly, you know, this isn't, you know, as well, this isn't like that we're trying to reinvent the wheel. I think it's an, an, an iteration of sort of coaching and, and athlete development that's been sort of coming for a long time across a multitude of sports, you know, soccer as, probably a prime or soccer football whatever you want to call it it's a prime example of where there's been so much research done in in player development and talent development and you know and yet you hear these stories of um i'm going to kind of pick one country but how you know talent comes out of brazil and it's because these kids um, are growing up playing you know small-sided games in uh, you know, constrained spaces on, on uneven surfaces, um, you know, with different size goals, different weight ball, you know, in, in favelas or, or, you know, um, suburbs of cities. And, and, and that's actually creating so much diversity in the stimuli that they're getting that then when they go into a more structured environment, it's almost like they've got, you know, so many, so many different, coloring in pencils that actually you know shading something in in black or shading something in in blue is just really easy to do you know whereas i think in a western you know in in more western civilizations we've always 
tried to work out in coaching in, in many sports, you know, well, well, what's the right crayon to use at the right point? And, and yet we, we learning, we are learning more and more, you know, you look at sports in the U S uh, all the, the, the top NFL selections every year at the, at the, at the draft at the combine, um, more and more and more you're seeing, you know, athletes, you know, that are the top picks, you know, also talking about how they excelled in baseball and basketball and track and field when they were high school kids, um, and high school's all the way up to 18. Um, and so what that's telling you is just diversity and, and a broad range of stimuli is, is ultimately what works best. And, and there isn't an exact formula for that. It's, you know, it's not like you must use these different stimuli to create good athletes. It's just athletes need to be presented with lots of opportunities. And there'll always be athletes that will stand out from the crowd. You know, Tiger Woods is the classic example of, um, you know, was swinging a golf club when he was a tiny baby before he could even walk properly. Um, and then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got, um, it's like no, Rafael Nadal, um, who didn't really get into tennis until he was a teenager. Yeah. Uh, for listeners that, uh, that like reading or like books, uh, David Epstein's range is a fantastic book that, yeah. that talks about this. I, I think the football example is really, really interesting. Uh, I used to, to play football for a long time as a kid. And, uh, and what you, the comparison you make there between the Western uh, football development system and, and Brazil, where it happens organically and in an unstructured way, uh, what we used to do was passing drills, shooting drills, defense drills all, all sorts of things really and uh and of course there, there were some small-sided games and and just normal game time but uh but i think that it was definitely a, a quite a structured way of, of learning trying to break the game down into different subcomponents. but uh but that didn't mean obviously we were nowhere near as technically proficient or proficient to anything as like these kids coming out of brazil usually so so i think i think that's a, a really good example of how an integrated approach and uh, not necessarily the most structured approach can be a really good approach still in terms of developing performance potential and the performance potential in a diverse set of conditions as well so so that was one and, one thing yeah sorry god and and that's a, you know it's a good point that you make about um you know a, a lack of structure and, and and it can don't get me wrong it, you know it can it can backfire. You know, you, you do get some athletes who you present them with a training session where there's a quite a significant amount of autonomy and they just go, well, I'm just going to do this workout that you gave me in the past. That's really, really, really structured and specific because that's just what ticks the box for me mentally. And that's fine because I also as a coach, I think that can start to tell you a lot about an athlete um, that, okay, well, actually, you know, the area of development for this athlete is is coping with chaos, is coping with complexity, which they might encounter in a race scenario. And and it's you know it's interesting that we're talking about um, you know stochastic uh, racing or complexity or chaos in racing in races that take um, you know anywhere from three hours and forty minutes to sixteen hours um, and 
but the reality is those things do still occur and they just occur in different ways for different athletes at different stages of development you know for an athlete that's very new to the sport and is just trying to get around their first ironman the complexity is the terrain and the weather conditions and the wind and the hydration and you know those are those are the complexity factors for them um for an elite you know it it there's even more yeah i, I think one of the things that stand out to me as well is that uh, i guess as a society and and in triathlon we have a very typical sort of demographic both in terms of nationalities but also in terms of personality types that are attracted to triathlon and i think a lot of us are really we we like some sort of certainty or predictability and i guess that's not maybe unique to triathlon yeah. it's for humankind but but also in some ways it's uh it's a false sense of certainty that we think that we have a certain plan laid out a certain like really rigid structure to something and we think that okay if we can diligently follow this then we will be at exactly abc fitness on on race day and be able to do uh, do whatever performance we have been we've been aiming towards and and sometimes maybe it's better to be um to be uncomfortable about having uncertainty and accepting that we have uncertainty and how things will go rather than be like having a full sense of certainty but actually being wrong about how that certainty exists in a plan because it, it really doesn't like it, it is so interdependent all, all the things related to developing performance potential because it's not just physiology it's psychology and and uh, cognitive skills and and being able to and social you know social social pressures backgrounds yeah um all those things and and that's what what's really interesting is you know one of the papers that you know we were looking at um, you know, it highlighted this point about, you know, that, you know, the, the, the real true champions, you know, are differentiated by the, the mindset that they bring to the, you know, a, to a situation, to a, you know, a, a, a sporting trauma, to a complexity, to a chaotic situation. It's the mindset that they bring to it. It's not the experience and, and as a result, wisdom that they have from prior occurrences. And, um, and I think that's, that's really interesting is that, the, you know, whether you're a, a, a novice a athlete or whether you're, you know, a, a top age group or whether you're a world-class elite, what you really want to be thinking about is what do I take away from every experience that I have in a training session um, or in a race? You know, what what do I take away as a what went well? You know, what is an area of development or what is a I'm just scratching my head and I've got no idea um, what went on. And And then, you know, whether you have people around you that can – help resolve those things or whether you know you can do that yourself just by reflecting on that experience um that's where the real growth and success occurs with you know with with any athlete yeah yeah that they talked about proactive coping mechanisms versus being yeah. reactive and and i think that's something that 
blends nicely with what we talked about with reflection and and learning from from session to session um, for example if you go out and do a a long uh key key workout a key ride for example and and you you end up uh bonking for example then like being proactive about that okay this happened now how do i make sure that it doesn't happen in the race what what can i do differently rather than just being reactive and and on when it happens on race day uh you start to think oh i really need to do something about this because this ruined my race but uh, yeah that that being a dif- differentiating factor between the the two champions and and the others was was really interesting and, and that, something we could and all that, learn from and that proactivity you know it applies to everything that that you know interconnects with with performance you know when you know when, when we think of um you know the some of the things that that female athletes have to deal with um you know i i i um i, I make an effort to to understand you know how the menstrual cycle impacts on lactate metabolism how it impacts on carbohydrate metabolism how it uh, impacts on hemodynamics and I listened to a really interesting presentation the other day, and the the research scientist the, uh, was talking about how you know we we definitely are aware of this subject in in female sports in you know women's basketball, women's soccer, and and it's something that 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 teams and professional organisations are beginning to ensure that there is appropriate education in place for the players and the staff. Um, but they made a really interesting point that you know the research at the moment has has said okay well you know maybe this is an optimal point in an athlete's in a female athlete's cycle to race when in fact what we should be doing is saying what does this athlete need to do the rest of the time to ensure that they can race and perform to the best of their ability pretty much whenever and i thought that was a really interesting point that they were making and saying then you know because you know the the menstrual cycle can have very different impacts on different females um there may be different ways that they have to approach it from a recovery perspective or a nutrition perspective and so you know i've i've personally had athletes that have gone through an entire season of racing and been in a situation where 50% of their goal races are absolutely right where they don't want the race to be um and lo and behold those races were never their best performances um now on reflection you know i would look back at, at you know that situation sort of several years ago and say it would have been really nice to know that actually maybe we could have done things in terms of nutritional strategies actually day to day week to week that that change week on week that actually help that athlete perform to their best of their ability so that you know that's an example of um sort of thinking outside the box about factors that impact on performance and and managing those in a proactive way that's going to actually improve an athlete's ability to perform yeah yeah that's a, that's a fantastic example um you mentioned earlier that we shouldn't try to reinvent the wheel uh can can you maybe just recap some some of the things that you still think it's important like in in what sense is it still important to perhaps think about the components of the system of the athlete as a as a single system and and try to develop certain comp- components to to what extent do you think it still makes sense to do that i, I mean i think that i think 
the the easiest way to to look at that is is firstly to say if you're very early on in your athletic career as a triathlete and I'm going to stick with triathlon and specifically long distance triathlon or somebody that's maybe new to the sport and and doing a, an Olympic distance race or even a sprint distance race but if you're very new to the sport your main concern should not be you know the minutiae of you know what heart you know what heart rate zone do I need to do my training in what's my threshold um I, I think that you want to get a broad range of experience in training stimuluses um that keep you active keep you training consistently and broaden your experience and awareness of what you're doing and how it feels and then as you become more and more experienced you know you can start to develop you know really deep training loads in in certain territories to address certain developmental needs you know like for instance if you've decided to do an Ironman and you've never done one before then clearly there's going to be a big developmental need to do a lot more aerobic work and you know basic principles that you can't avoid uh, I think are you know I won't go as far to say that you know um, polarized 80-20 training is the be all and end all but there definitely needs to be a large percentage of your training um, that is very aerobically orientated because that's the nature of the racing that we do and then everything after that is sort of contextual to your development needs and the racing that you're going to do so a good example that I use in that is that if somebody has decided to do a half Ironman that's really really hilly and hot and they live somewhere that's in the northern hemisphere and very flat then you definitely need to get creative around working out how you're going to excel in that very different environment yeah that's that's a great summary and uh well one thing that i also wanted to to ask you is if you feel that uh, and i kind of touched upon this earlier but do you feel that we generally have perhaps an an overly confident view in like a very rigid stru- structured approach or um and and not really but but lacking maybe some creativity for lack of a better word uh, in in how we design training and how we go about executing the training training as well yeah absolutely i mean i think coaches and i'm included in this i'm not sat here being all high and mighty i think for many years we've chased after the sort of perfect periodization and there isn't really the perfect periodization you know there's um you know uh, some athletes will need certain amounts of rest on certain intervals than others um some individuals need to be a lot more careful with you know high mileage running than others um so i think trying to figure out the perfect solution is is not a great uh is not a great place to be nowadays as a as a coach whereas i think understanding basic principles and you know the fact that you you know you want to create the ability to move well before you want to create the ability to move well 
you know, at high speed and power before you create the ability to move well at high speed and power for a long period of time. You know, I don't think you can suddenly jump to the end of that analogy and, and expect people to, to excel. Yeah, uh, I think that, uh, that that is a great uh, great take. And in addition to searching for the perfect periodization, these days I think we see a lot of discussions around what is the perfect training intensity distribution. Also, what is the perfect workout to improve this, this, and that, or the perfect workouts. And uh, and I think that's something that that our discussions or the last couple of months around this topic has made me think about a lot in terms of like really not looking so much for perfect perfection in any way but also when when i started thinking about that i started thinking about why is it that we always look for the perfect solution for a physiological problem when physiology is not not the only thing that matters when it comes to race performance and exactly and i kind of think that we we tend to maybe sometimes overestimate physiology and and we don't pay as much attention as we should to things like psychology no i mean you're absolutely spot on and you know with with the situation that we've been in, I say we, I don't mean the royal we, you and I, I just mean generally as society with, with COVID um, over the last year, year, we, what we've seen is, um, you know, the evolution of um, changes in athlete adaptation due to the sort of, you know, the mental fatigue of training for long periods of time without a known sort of line in the sand in terms of when they're racing um and you know or or having to train in a sort of a lockdown type scenario and not knowing when that's going to end and and so you can have the perfect training plan for the circumstances but if you discount the fact that it might be mentally really taxing um under those circumstances that it's being executed then you find yourself in a situation where you're scratching your head and going, well, why didn't I get the adaptation that I was expecting? Um, and so, you know, um, one research scientist I know um, who's also who's also a coach to, to world-class athletes um, uses this phrase of sort of psychosocial biological performance. And, um, and I think that's a good way of looking at it. And depending on the individual, um, you may wait certain aspects of that phraseology in a uh, different ways yeah absolutely um let's start to wrap up can uh, can you give us maybe two or three practical takeaways that you want to leave the listeners with uh, i think the biggest i would say is you know as a as an athlete that's looking to develop um really try to reflect on on the experiences that haven't gone well in training or racing and and ask yourself well why didn't those go well and and if you can't sort of deductively reason why that is then you know certainly find somebody or look for information on figuring that out because that's where I think the real opportunities lie in any athlete's development. And and those things do evolve. It's not like you fix you fix one thing and then you know you have the most perfect race ever. It's like you fix one thing and then something else crops up. Um and then you fix something else and then something else crops up. Um 
and and as long as you're happy on that journey of being sort of proactively reflective um you'll you'll always continue to improve and develop as an athlete and that's the that's the biggest takeaway i would give you know everyone right yeah and then i'll I'll just chime in with with mine which is which i probably would say that for me it's to to train according to different scenarios that you that you might encounter on on race day and make sure that you add that in and get a relatively frequent exposure to to that sort of training and and making sure that it's a uh or trying to get a diverse set of that as well and not having sort of too many constrained preconceived notion of what the race is going to look like because it's unlikely that you can uh that you're able to go at a super steady 250 watts for the entire race but but really think about well what is this race actually going to going to look like and what can potentially happen that i might not have thought about yet but training for that as well and, I, and i'd add to that statement of yours that you know those um those constraints to the training you know might also be environmentally driven or or, or competitor driven um based on one's experience or one's intentions of racing um so going back to that example of you know terrain course heat humidity wind i know all of these things you can get creative um around figuring ways to develop awareness of what what those environments are going to feel like not not you know not only just the racing intensity and and how that executes yeah yeah that's uh that's that's really great and uh really agree with that finally uh we have we have discussed a few papers that we've looked at and, and i will link to them all in the show notes for this episode so you don't need to mention them here specifically because they will be there and i can mention them in the outro of the ep- episode is there anything else that i'm not aware of that you have looked at that you would consider a good recommended <laughs> resource on on the topic for people interested in learning more and reading more um, I mean, I think going back to the psychology of, of racing, I think, uh, you know, a really good resource that's been on my radar for a long time. And I've actually had, you know, quite a few athletes turn to it recently, um, particularly because of sort of uh, the COVID situation has sort of made them really sort of look at what's driving them to perform. Um, and that's, that's Carol Dweck's book, uh, Growth Mindset. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's a good recommendation. I, I think an, uh, one thing that is a bit sort of vague and and uh, unstructured is uh, I, f- I find that listening to interviews with pro athletes uh, is is quite intriguing. In that you don't always get uh, you know the specific training program or anything, and that's not necessarily what you li- or that's not what I listen to those interviews for anyway. But uh, but hearing the stories can actually help you get some if nothing else motivation but also inspiration to how how to do small changes and tweaks to your training yourself i remember for example an anecdote from alistair brownlee when preparing for the london 2012 olympics on a podcast he was he was saying how every single run and i'm not sure if he meant every single hard run or every single run period he ended with a 100 meter all-out sprint because he thought that that was what the race is gonna end like and and he just was really prepared for that and and i think that well pro athletes that they maybe don't do everything right but but there's definitely there are things that we can learn from them and so so just listening to that and with an open mind i think and uh 
and maybe trying some things out and see if it works for you and your scenario, that, that can be another interesting resource. Yeah, I think the point that you raised about about certainty is a really key one. You know, one of the, the uh, particularly sort of top track and field coach that, that I know uses this analogy, and I think it's a good one, of the, you know, in terms of their coaching, um, 80% of what they advise is sort of wisdom-based. 20% is sort of experimental based on sort of intuition and research. And then 5% is pure guesswork. And I think, you know, when you've got world-class coaches saying that, then you know, it kind of reminds you that it's not necessarily good to chase after certainty um, in what you're doing because it just doesn't exist. And I think when you look at professional athletes as well, you know, I, I would caution that sometimes the impression you can get is that what's worked for the, you know, the mechanisms by which this person has become world-class, you know, are things that I can apply. And the reality is invariably not that. And, and there's a really good book by a guy called Todd Rose called Dark Horse. And that's a really great read around actually getting to the top in in whatever endeavor it is that you're choosing to pursue can actually be pretty messy and pretty chaotic and involve quite a lot of failure um and so we have to caution ourselves at taking you know a, a sort of a rose-tinted view of a particular athlete's journey to success and saying Oh, that, that's what, you know, we should all be doing in training. Because the reality is that's probably maybe like a, a tenth or a quarter of what is actually relevant. Yes, no, that, that is absolutely true for sure. And, uh, and it all needs to be considered on, on an individual level and, and applied, applied, I guess, scaled or, or adjusted for what the individual skills are and, and ability yeah. level. All right. Um, so, David, where can people follow you and uh, what uh, you got going on? Do you have any? any... Um, <laughs> I think probably the on Instagram, Coach Tilbers is uh, is where I post. Um, I'm not prolific on social media, um, and you know, certainly if people are interested in in what some of the athletes I work with are doing, uh, there's. You know, I'm going to have plenty of athletes racing at uh, St. George 70.3 in a few weeks where um, I'll have Alyssa Daler, Leslie Smith, Kayla Cabellin, uh, Lionel Sanders, uh, all, uh, Bart Ernest all racing and then at Ironman Tulsa as well. Quite a few of those individuals will be racing there. Kim Morrison as well who just had a really good race uh, at Galveston. Uh, those are probably, you know, if you're looking to see what some of the athletes are doing, um, those would be two races to to follow and uh, and look at what they're up to. Great, yeah, and good, good luck to to all of them. Uh, all right, that's it. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, and having no a chat. At all. I very much appreciate it, and I'll talk to you again soon. Take care. 
I hope that you enjoyed that discussion with uh, coach David Tilbury Davis. Uh, I want to make some um, some commentary here at the end of the episode. Uh, David and I are both very aware that uh, this episode is quite a bit different than what we've done in the past. And uh, honestly, it's uh, very different to any episode I've ever done on this podcast, I would say. So as I said at the beginning, it can take some time to digest this information and uh, let it take that time, maybe listen to it, listen to it again. But I think that it can, uh, it can open up your, your mind and your thoughts and make you think about things. And that's the goal of it at the end of the day. Uh, a couple of points that I want to, to highlight here before we wrap up is that we're talking about an evolution in coaching and training not revolution not radical change and throwing everything out and starting from scratch we're essentially just describing one particular frame framework or set or, or a set of frameworks that can be complementing the traditional style of endurance training it's not a binary choice between completely different approaches it's another tool in the toolbox so in your evolution as a coach or as a self-coached athlete perhaps uh, and uh, Another thing that I want to discuss is that if you think that we were a bit vague in this discussion, then you are probably right. And there are several reasons for this. Uh, first of all, we decided to have this be an organic discussion rather than the more typical interview style that I normally do. And uh, that meant a lot of jumping back and forth between topics for good and for bad. And the good part, I think, about this was that we really managed to avoid, I think, all or almost all jargon that could easily have worked its way in if we had discussed this from an interview perspective, maybe discussing things that we can find in the literature and so on. But uh, on the flip side, maybe it was a bit unstructured or it definitely was more unstructured than a normal interview. So, so that may cause it to be a bit more vague in that sense. But hopefully we provided enough examples to highlight some of the key points anyway. Another thing that I think is important to note is that we definitely don't pretend to have all the answers or have a guidebook or a formula to, to coaching or training. And uh, I mean, this these particular topics or frameworks of training that we discussed here, David has been exploring these topics in both practice and in theory for many months already. I'm personally far behind his level of expertise, uh, but uh, but even if we had both had years to work on it, the episode might still have sounded the same because an important part of this evolution of coaching that we're describing is that the role of the coach can be seen as co-discovering with the athlete and and not just be there to provide solutions uh, but uh, be there to discover with the athlete together with the athlete and also be the one who designs a learning environment for the athlete but then the athlete and the constraints that the environment poses they they become really uh, the athlete finds their own solutions within within that constraints-based uh, learning approach so so it, it it's very much iterative and depending on the athlete feedback from the coach's roles perspective and uh yeah just to to finalize with with one more thing that i already mentioned but the purpose of this discussion is simply to make you think and reflect so if our discussion achieved that then in my mind it served its purpose and it probably will be the kind of episode that many listeners might not find very interesting or useful or practical but i hope and believe that for uh maybe a smaller group of listeners that it can be really really unique and eye-opening and perhaps one of the best episodes they've ever listened to so so i i hope that it maybe achieved that for for a smaller group of listeners 
As always, you can find the show notes for today's episode on scientifictriathlon.com with links to David's past appearances on the podcast and also a number of research papers for those curious to dig into the literature. Just a word of warning that some of them are quite jargon-heavy. That's not to discourage you from reading them, but it's just to say that if you don't immediately recognize how they relate to what we discussed in this episode, it's because we tried to cut out all the jargon from from our discussion. Uh, If you just want to get a high-level summary, then I think that the paper that I linked to by Paul and colleagues has two tables, table one and two, that provide a great summary of of some of the things in, in these types of coaching and training frameworks on Thursday we have another tts Thursday episode coming out and then next monday there will be an interview as usual with a guest who is still to be confirmed at the moment of recording this segment so yeah just stay subscribed or subscribe if you are not already so that you don't miss any future episodes and uh, finally remember that we are now in the launch period of the newly launched advanced olympic half and full distance training plans so for a limited period you can get these plans for 60 percent off the regular price this uh, period lasts until the 30th of april of 2021 with the code promo code advanced at checkout on the training peaks page for any for for each uh, for each plan you can find all the links to the plan versions and all the information and the and the code, etc. on scientifictriathlon.com on the training plans page. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and get a free hydration strategy and get 15% off your order with the promo code DEATTRIATHLONSHOW15. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses. And get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving craft long.